From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. When we go to the election box now, we aren't voting just for a party or candidate, but we are voting in a sense to affirm the great identities that are a part of our lives. So the perception can be, if my candidate loses, it's not just my candidate or party, but the sense is all of my identities, they've now lost too. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He is Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Glen Mary is a religious congregation he belongs to, and it's a missionary society of apostolic life in the Catholic Church. Father Westman has a Ph.D. from the Catholic University in Louvain in systematic theology. He serves as an at-large board member of the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious, and he's a guest lecturer at the St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Father Aaron Westman, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. It's really a privilege and an honor to be here with you. Thank you for those kind words. I want to return that by saying some kind words about your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. I read a lot of books, and I will tell you that among my favorites to read are ones that sort of look at the world and help me to see it in a more clear and more analytic fashion. And that is absolutely what your book is doing here. You're taking what is all around us, if I may use a metaphor that you bring up in the book, a kind of storm all around us, and you're really helping us to see more clearly the aspects of that storm, the places where we're overwhelmed and the places where we can actually take action. So I just want to say at the outset to my listeners, this is a fantastic book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. So to do that, I want to take a couple minutes and kind of set the stage with some concepts that you bring up throughout the book. So one set of concepts that you bring up is this idea of sorting and homogenization. And I think we should maybe take each of those in turn. So when I am getting home from the grocery store, I take my groceries out and I start to put like with like, and I'm sorting there. So that begins to give us a sense of what we mean. But in the way that you're using sorting in this book, tell us a little bit about that and take us a little deeper. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. That's a great question and a great way to begin. So I think to understand the idea of sorting, it's maybe good just to step back a little bit and say that I'm specifically looking at the context of the United States. And so people talk about polarization and as it exists in different countries and different places throughout the world. And I'm certainly not an expert on that. And I tried my best to really focus on one cultural context, and that is the U.S. The other thing is to mention that oftentimes when we talk about polarization and even about sorting, we sometimes focus right in on the moment in which we are living. And I think it's good to, again, take a step back and say, actually, when we talk about polarization and sorting, 
We're talking about something that has happened over the last five or six decades in the United States. And that's a really important point to make because sometimes we can get overwhelmed by what's happening right now. We can perhaps focus on one politician or one political party or one event in the present moment and forget the larger picture. So what do I mean by sorting? Well, I'm following the work here of Bill Bishop, who wrote a book called The Big Sort, also the work of Ezra Klein, who wrote a book called Why We're Polarized. And what sorting means is that over the last four, five, or even six decades in the United States, people made a decision to move to various parts of the United States. And some of those decisions they made explicitly for political reasons, but many of them not so much. They just picked places of the U.S. for the particular preferences they had. Maybe they liked a particular store. Maybe they were looking for a particular religious congregation to worship at. Maybe they liked the political yard signs that they saw in a particular area. Well, what happened over the last four or five decades is that we have sorted into geographic regions into the United States. We've created two groups divided geographically, and then within those sorted groups are any number of kind of identity markers or ideas about who we are as people, such as our political parties that we belong to, the values that we hold, the kind of the cultural markers about who we are, where we like to shop, what we like to do for entertainment. Also, our religious identities are sorted within those two groups. And what we find is that in the United States, in an unprecedented way, really, we have sorted into two groups divided by, let's say, the coasts and the interior or the heartland of the United States, or perhaps we sorted into what we might call a, maybe a rural and an urban divide. And so that's the two major groups that we've sorted to in the United States. And it's happened over about five or six decades. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. Father Westman is Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a PhD from the Catholic University in Louvain in Systematic Theology and serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Well, Father Westman, you've started to talk to us about sorting and how people look at the yard signs or other markers and say, hey, here's where I want to live. Now, help us understand how sorting leads into this other concept of homogenization. What do we mean by that? Yeah, sure. And so just some of the kind of general consequences. Once we've sorted into these two groups, it's good to point out then that we're not associating with the people of the other group. We don't live around those people, again, statistically speaking, right? We don't share the same space that we might consider to be our home. We don't have children. They're on the same Little League baseball team. We don't run into each other when we're shopping in restaurants. So there's a certain unfamiliarity that exists between the group that we are in and the other group, if you will. One of the other consequences immediately with sorting is that there just is less diversity within the groups that we have sorted in. So for one example, the one group that exists, the more rural group, happens to align politically with the Republican Party, tends to be far more conservative in its thought, tends to be, statistically speaking, much more evangelical, Christian, also Christians of other denominations, but generally Christian in its makeup. And so what we find is there are just fewer and fewer people within that particular group that, let's say, identify as unaffiliated or perhaps are from a non-Caucasian race that maybe live on the coasts or in an urban part of the United States. And so what we find is there's 
what I call homogenization, which is just the lessening of diversity within those particular groups. And one of the things that's worth pointing out is that when we talk about polarization, we need to think group dynamics and group psychology, social psychology. And I would say that in doing this research, this was one of the fields that was the most exciting for me to learn about. And I was very much new to the field, a novice, if you will, and really following the research of social psychologists as best as I could. And one of the things that we find in social psychology is that one of the group dynamics is if there isn't a certain level of diversity of thought, of opinion, of say, of race, of religious perspective, whatever diversity is there starts to get pushed out, if you will. So you can imagine 20 people, 10 go into one group and they want to form a soccer team, right? So Maybe two people in that 10 want to play football, but they're not going to put forth their perspective because they're going to be pushed out by the majority of that group. And that's what happens within the groups we've sorted. And now there's just less and less diversity uh, within those groups, which is what I call homogenization. So as we're laying these concepts on the table, I'm really grateful for, for your taking time to define them. You've added a couple of other terms into our discussion as well, group dynamics, social psychology, in addition to homogenization and sorting. All of this sort of comes under the umbrella of a term that you use throughout the book, the science of polarization. And I wonder if you just step back for a moment so that my listeners can really get a sense. You're not shooting from the hip here. What you're drawing from is a long-term project to try and understand these dynamics. So talk to us about the science of polarization. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of people in the field of sociology in psychology, especially in group psychology or evolutionary psychology, also those in the realm of political science who have taken a number of decades to study the idea of polarization and try to figure out what does it mean for us to be polarized? And in particular, an interesting thing is that once we form groups, groups have a tendency to influence us in a particular way. Sometimes groups can impede our ability to think clearly Sometimes groups can create a situation in where there's an us versus them mentality. And so there are tendencies psychologically and sociologically within us as human beings, if you will, that are like switches that get turned on and we start to operate in particular ways whenever we're in these groups. And polarization is the formation of two groups. And so when we talk about the science of polarization, we're studying group dynamics, we're studying political science, we're studying psychology. Now, I would even say we're studying theology in other fields as well. Well, and there's a striking example of this that you give in your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, when we look at this notion that polarization can cause demonization. You talk about a psychological study where two groups of people are randomly assigned some attributes. And what happens over the course of this study is they immediately begin to emphasize these attributes and to demonize, for want of a better term, the attributes of the other group. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Absolutely, David. So I was introduced to the work of a psychologist, Henri Tajfel, and Tajfel's work was very significant. It came out in the work of Liliana Mason, for instance, and Ezra Klein, also the work of Monica Guzman in her study on polarization. And Tajfel was a Polish Jew who, during the very tumultuous period of before the Second World War, immigrated into France and then hid his Polish identity and he did so because he knew that if that identity came out, he would be persecuted even more. And he actually served in the French army. And then later on, he went back to Poland 
And of course, many of that period of time, he found that most of his family had been killed. So Tashville became very much interested uh, in the idea of groups and group dynamics. And he wanted to understand why do we relate one group to another in these different dynamics? And particularly, what is the minimal level of an identity marker that is different from one group to the next that will cause this kind of intergroup dynamic or intergroup conflict? So Tajfel set out to study this, and actually he was shocked with his own research. So what he found was that at a very basic level, he put people into two different groups, and they were make-believe groups. The identity markers that differentiated the groups didn't have any bearing on these people's lives at all. One of them was whether you were an overestimator of dots on a screen or an underestimator of dots on a screen. And then he asked these members of different groups to give out fake money in which they would never themselves actually be affected by receiving money and give them out to people of their own group or people of the other group, the them. What Tajfeld found out is that from this basic make-believe identity marker, people already started to reward their own group and punish the outgroup. That is, they would give money to their own group in larger amounts, they would give lesser amounts to, their, to the outgroup. And in some cases, even when it didn't benefit them directly, people would actually punish the outgroup just for the sake of punishing the outgroup. So Tajville's research is like a baseline for us understanding these intergroup dynamics. And if we extrapolate, we can already begin to think about what does this mean when the identity markers in my group are some of the most important values in identity markers that I maintain in my life, my religious identity, my political identity, my sexual identity, my racial identity. That's far more important than simply an overestimator and under, underestimator of a number of dots on the screen. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a PhD from the Catholic University in Louvain in Systematic Theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious and is a guest lecturer at the St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. Today we're speaking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a Ph.D. from the Catholic University in Louvain in Systematic Theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious, and he's a guest lecturer at the St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. We're talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. 
In our first segment, we really began to lay out the pieces here for what you have called in your book the science of polarization. So we've looked at aspects of sorting and homogenization, group dynamics, social psychology, and we've talked as well about a study where a a random group of people assigned random markers began to favor their in-group and suppress their out-group. I want to come back to something that you said in the midst of that really intrigued me. You said that there's a certain threshold in the sorting and homogenization process where if there's a certain amount of diversity, that diversity begins to thrive within a community. But beneath a certain threshold level, the diversity begins to be actively pushed out. Now, I want to say, first of all, did I hear that correctly or would you say this in a different way? Maybe I would say it slightly different. In some cases, there are activities going on in the American context that within the groups that we've sorted into, people are pushing out some of the diversity that exists there. And I talk about this in my book. And for instance, it was politically expedient for political parties to try to, in a sense, get people to think the same way and put forth the same policies because political parties didn't want split ticket voting. They wanted people to go to the election box and really to say, well, I'm all in for the Republicans or I'm all in for the Democrats. They, in a sense, they wanted to make it easier for us. And so if there was a diversity of thought in, in one sense, that was, that diversity was pushed out, if you will. On the other hand, though, there, there's a sense in which if we don't feel that the diversity that we represent is significantly represented in the group, we have a tendency to mimic, if you will, the ideas of the group and even mimic uh, the values that are held by the group. And I looked at the work of David French, for instance, and he looks at the issue of polarization and he shows on a number of different issues, people will try to be more conservative, if you will, if they're part of the Republican Party and more progressive, if you will, the part of the Democratic Party. But even even people will not say, let's say, talk as much about their sexual identity if it doesn't seem like it's going to fit within the group which they're existing. And, and we can imagine that. We just talk about group pressure, if you will, or that pressure to conform And one of these dynamics of groups is that pressure for conformity. It's very difficult for us to stick our head out when we are in a minority. And we can imagine that this could be really problematic. Let's say I'm in a group of 10 people and a number of people there are holding very negative feelings about a a particular race, a particular group. Will I have the courage to stick my head above and, and challenge that notion if I am in the minority? And what we see in some of the psychological studies is that it People can do it, but it's very difficult for us to do it because groups, in a sense, are so important to who we understand ourselves to be. And then even historically, evolutionarily, if you will, groups are so important for our survival. And that kind of comes back to who we are. And people have talked about that in a group, if I feel my membership in the group is being threatened, or if I feel that the group is being threatened, there are switches that turn on in our brain deep inside, if you will, that say, oh my gosh, I need to pay attention to this. And the stresses actually start to manifest themselves biologically in our bodies, which is very uncomfortable. And so we either want to fix our membership, that is deepen our membership in the group, or protect the group. And again, that starts to get into this whole conversation of the us versus them mentality. If I feel a group is threatening me, why feel that stressor turn on inside? And I will do things to support my own group and defend myself from the outgroup. I really appreciate that clarification, and it makes me realize that this is a good point for us to introduce an idea that really blew my mind when I was reading your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. It's this concept of mega-identities. 
the notion sometimes I think would be that all identities are created equal and they're thrown into a box and you, they're just jostling around. But if I'm understanding the concept of mega identities correctly, there are occasionally identities that we have, and you cite the example of political party in the American context. Those become the identities that sort and cause all other identities beneath them to kind of conform in lockstep. Now, these are my words, not yours. Have I got it right? Would you say it in a different way? And once you've clarified, could you tell us a little bit more about mega identities? Yeah, David, I think you do have it right. And Liliana Mason is the one I believe who coined the term mega identity. And this is in her book, Uncivil Agreement. And what that really means is that exactly not all identities have the same influence on us in our life. And what people who research the science of polarization are saying to us now is that politics, in a sense, has come to dominate pretty much every aspect of our lives. And first thing to note on that is that's different than where the way it was 50 or 60 years ago. Part of what happens, and you can imagine, and this is a metaphor, if you will, that Ezra Klein uses, you can imagine this like metal rod, and that's our political identity. And stacked on top of that metal rod are all of these different magnets, and they represent the various identities of our lives, our sexual identity, religious identity, our geographical identity, our racial identity. And in a sense, politics runs through each of those magnets and can control those magnets, but it locks into them. And so that politics has really an exaggerated influence on our lives. What we find is that the magnets are not the same for one group or the other. In fact, they're distributed in different ways. So you have that kind of conservative, if you will, a Republican metal rod and all of those magnets stacked on top. It usually would be Christian identity to happens to be white identity, happens to be rural identity, so on and so forth. And then that other rod would be the progressive, if you will, Democratic um, political identity. And stacked on top of that would be coming from the cities, maybe being more globally minded probably being more non-Christian or unaffiliated, if you will, statistically speaking, so on and so forth. So what this means is that those in political leadership can activate all of those identities if they want to and speak to them because they've sorted almost completely. So there is no harm done for a Republican or a conservative person to speak to the Christian identity because that identity is, has sorted now almost very solidly into the Republican Party, especially from the evangelical perspective. So there's a great influence now, if you will, when somebody in the political realm speaks to that particular identity. And the same to go for other identities in our lives. And I was reading this article in The Atlantic recently, and they said politics today is oftentimes like the sand on a beach. You know, you, you go to the beach. You get sand on yourself and then everything else. And then when you leave the beach, it's still there. It's everywhere, right? And you can't get rid of it in a sense. And I think that's what this reality of mega identities brings out, that politics has infused all the identities of our lives. And it's a the same. When we go to the election box now, we aren't voting just for a party or a candidate, but we are voting in a sense to affirm the great identities that are a part of our lives. So the perception can be, I vote for the Republican Party, let's say, for the Republican candidate, but that is in a sense the vote for maybe my Christian identity, my white identity, my rural identity, my idea of family, my identity regarding my sexuality, and vice versa on the other side. So if my candidate loses, imagine this now, David, if my candidate loses, it's not just my candidate or party, but the sense is all of my identities 
they've now lost too. And that's why we feel elections today far more deeply than we ever did before. And that creates a deeper sense of fear as well, right? My goodness, if all of my identities are threatened by the outcome of this election, then I need to defeat that other party, that other mega identity, if you will, with all of my efforts and all of my energy, because in a sense, it can feel like everything is at stake. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. I really appreciate how you just took this idea of mega identities and you gave us this notion of the stacking magnets on the metal rod, and then you tied it into what we were saying earlier about these insights that we get from the science of polarization, how group dynamics can begin to play in where we feel like everything is at stake and politics becomes a kind of organizing factor for a cosmic zero-sum game. Now I want to play with this for a little bit and really begin to think about how this plays out in the context that you have the most interest in in your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, the church context and particularly the Catholic church context. So we're looking at group dynamics, we're looking at this notion of stacked polarization of mega identities, and as we're having this discussion, in the back of my mind is a comment that's often attributed, but really misattributed to Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, where he says, the future will hold a smaller, purer church. Now, what he said was much more nuanced than that, but that's oftentimes what particularly those in the more conservative realms of Catholicism heard, and they cheered and said, yes, we want a smaller, purer church. In other words, let's get the diversity out. And so what we're looking at in real time is this dynamic of mega-identities and the kind of science of polarization, the kind of homogenization that we're talking about, working itself out in real time where people are looking and saying, yes, the most important identity for me is the fact that I want a pure church, and whether or not you're a baptized Catholic doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you agree with my vision of the pure church. Now, when I characterize it this way, have I got the analysis right, or have I missed something? And if I've got the analysis right, what concerns you about that dynamic within the church? So there's a lot there, and so I really appreciate that engaging question. And I would just start going at this way, and this is how I try to subdivide it within the book. So obviously, we have a lot of denominations in the United States. I pay attention to evangelical Christianity on the one hand, and Catholicism on the other. And I think these two groups have different challenges living in a polarized world, such as the United States. And so just to say a few words about evangelicals, this is not my background. And so I I tread lightly here because I don't want to offend anybody from that group. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the statistics and what that might mean for evangelicals, and then point us in other directions of people who've thought about this for the evangelical world, such as Russell Moore and other people today. So for evangelicals, there's really, I think, a challenge in that they're almost exclusively aligned with the Republican Party. And I think statistically, I think it's something like 80% or something like that, or there's been statistics all around about 80 or 90%, and especially if you're a white male evangelical in terms of you're voting for a Republican candidate. And if you think about now that these mega groups or mega identities are like a hurricane that are swirling around, they suck us in to the center, right? 
and they keep us from interacting with the other group. And that's a challenge, specifically if you feel as a Christian, your discipleship should be about engaging the other. And my experience of evangelicals is that they definitely are concerned about this. They want to, if you will, evangelize or conduct mission. And there are a lot of nuances around that position. But the whole point is, I know they want to cross over to the other mega group, if you will. It might be the more progressive group, the democratic group, the unaffiliated group. But what the science of polarization tells us is that when there isn't enough diversity within your group, such as racial diversity, ideological diversity, political diversity, geographic diversity, it will make it very difficult for you to cross over to that other group to engage them. Group dynamics say we protect our own and we, in a sense, have to work through the fear that we might have of the other. So I think that's a unique position for evangelicals to be in. Now, looking at the Catholic Church, for instance, what we find is that both parties are pretty much represented evenly within Catholicism, like something like 45, 47% for each of the parties. So the way I see that, and I say there's the potential, right? So I'm not, I say that trying to nuance it here, there's a potential that those group dynamics, the political group dynamics could serve as two hurricanes swirling within the church itself, right? And the church is called not to allow this to happen. But because politics is such a strong influence in our life today, there is the chance that this will happen. And some might say to me, well, you know, Father Aaron, like, aren't we trying to like conform ourselves to Jesus and his gospel? And isn't that the most important identity in our lives? Well, I would say, ideally, yes, definitely, like this should be the case. However, statistically speaking, Pew Research has put out a number of different, I guess, essays and summaries and things like that. One of the things that Pew Research says and shows is that Catholics actually seem to vote with the value of their political party rather than the values that are held within the church. And so, again, we see the exaggerated influence of politics on the church, if you will. And that is a real challenge, I think, at least for Catholic identity, not just because of the values might be different from that, that what is taught by the church, for instance, or what is within the gospel, but also the way in which we conduct ourselves, right? So if politics is polarized and it's a negative polarization, it's an us versus them mentality, and the politics has such an influence on us as Christians or Catholics, then are we going to then relate to each other within the church in an us versus them mentality? And then also those outside of the church in an us versus them mentality. So I find us to be in a very precarious situation in the church in the United States because of just some of those dynamics. And there are others that we could talk about as well. I so appreciate the generosity of the answer to what was a huge question. And thank you for thinking so clearly at the mess that I threw at you just a moment ago. And I threw that mess at you for a purpose because now I want to ask this question. 
the church, the Catholic Church particularly, for the last couple of years has undergone a process known as the Synod on Synodality. And for those that are unfamiliar with these terms, that basically means listening to each other about how to listen to each other. And I'm wondering, as you look at this process of the Synod on Synodality and the call from Pope Francis for Catholics to really earnestly listen not only to those that are within the heart of the church, but those who have been pushed to the margins of the church or even outside the church— how are these mega identity dynamics helping or getting in the way of the synodal process? So I think one of the things to note is that some of the values that are inherent in the synodal process, this synod on synodality, actually match some of what I argue for are the ways in which we can start to maybe undo some of the negative polarization that is existing within the church. So in a sense, I would say that thankfully, what we're doing in the church is timely, especially in the United States that is struggling with the polarized world in which we live. Now, statistically speaking, I think it's important to recognize that especially with newer vocations in the church, newer vocations tend to skew a little bit more conservative, a little bit more Republican, that is newer priestly candidates, newer religious and that kind of thing. And generally in the church, there still tends to be these kind of like evenly distributed, if you will, political parties within the church. So again, if these group dynamics or these polarized dynamics are play in the church, it might be a struggle for, let's just say, leaders within the church uh, to maybe listen to groups that are somewhat more mar marginalized because they maybe represent a, a different political party, maybe come from a different background, maybe have a different ideological perspective. So what synodality, I think, is saying is that we need to come together in the same place and do it in person. The science of polarization does suggest that these conversations are best had in person in a very, in a sense, controlled or you want to use sacred or safe environment where people from various perspectives can share their perspectives. And I always talk about sharing your story. I think the story or the narrative that is a part of our life is perhaps the most important thing for us to share. And that we all have a chance to listen and hopefully to remain curious as we are listening, thinking of what other questions are here. Do I have the space inside of myself to make room for what this person is saying? What's happening in my own heart? What are my feelings when somebody from another perspective starts to speak from that perspective and I don't understand it and it's not where I come from? Can I calm myself down and recognize, look, we're all part of the same body of Christ. We might have divergent opinions, might have come from different theological perspectives, but that identity as the body of Christ should be our most important identity. And we should be reminded of what St. Paul says to us over and over again. You can tell his early communities were struggling with division and I would say even polarization. He kept saying, we need to be united, right? One phase, one baptism, coming back to the unity. Why? Because our identity in Christ is the most important identity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a PhD from the Catholic University of Louvain in Systematic Theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious. We're talking today about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a Ph.D. from the Catholic University of Louvain in Systematic Theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious. We're speaking today about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Well, I'd like to spend the last part of our conversation digging into really the gift that you give us after you've gone through all of this analysis using the science of polarization to find all of the mechanisms by which we divide ourselves. And you began to allude to this in the last part of our conversation right before the break, where you mentioned that St. Paul was really concerned with church unity. And it wasn't just Paul. You also note that St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, this is a running theme throughout the major figures, saints, and doctors of the church. And so I'd like to invite you to help us think about ways in which both the Catholic Church and the wider Church can begin to work against this kind of divisive pressure, this dividing that we constantly find ourselves caught up in. What are some of the ways that we can begin in our home congregations, in our parishes, to spot this and begin to work against it? I would say that this is the most important part of the book. And people have said to me, I'm so glad that you end the book with a very hopeful note. And I wanted to remain hopeful myself because I recognize that this is a challenge that exists within myself. So polarization is not just something that's outside happening in society, but recognize that in my own heart, there are polarizing tendencies within me. And I wondered why this was the case. And really, throughout this research, I was able to see, I think, in many ways, what was going on inside of me and then practice different things in order to sort of overcome, which are still present try to overcome some of the tendencies within me. So one of the things I do in the book is actually do what I call provide an examination of conscience. And I think many of listeners would probably be aware of this. We're getting ready for Lent, if you will. And so we take time to take stock of our own lives and ask ourselves, where could I improve? And what is God challenging me to do today? So in the book, I I know this is a very sensitive issue, right? And there's all these pitfalls all the way around. And so I figured, how do I approach this in a sensitive way? So I say, you know, here are some questions for us to think about. And I subdivide one of the chapters looking at the marks of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic. So these are gifts to the church, but we're also to cultivate these as Christians in our own lives. And so I just ask questions like, how am I cultivating unity in my own life? Am I being a source of division? How am I cultivating Catholicity? And what I mean by that is, am I open to the great mysteries of the world, the great truths that exist, even in the other political party that I may not belong to, or even in another religion that may not be my own religion, or even in a particular philosopher that I've never studied before. But to be Catholic is, in a sense, to open ourselves up to all that is true and beautiful and good in the world. Or have I given in to polarization, which is, Am I rigid and have I turned in on myself and am I only accepting my in-group, if you will? So I, I look at the four marks of the church and ask us to ask these questions. So I think, first of all, we would do well, I think, to do an examination of conscience. How have I given myself over to polarization and how am I contributing to polarization in society at large, in the church, 
on the way I interact on social media, uh, within my own family, so on and so forth. So to ask that really, I think, important question. The second thing I do is look extensively at the life in ministry of Jesus. And generally speaking here, if polarization is us seeing the other as an enemy who we need to destroy at all costs, particularly if we utilize the cultural war metaphor, I think Jesus's ministry and his life and message is just quite a bit different than that. So I look at that and I ask us to just think about Jesus. Let him be the image or the metaphor, if you will, that informs our lives today. I think we have the tools in our own theological tradition and our own Christian tradition to help us depolarize or overcome some of the negative tendencies of polarization. So what's that image of Jesus that I invite us to think about? So imagine the Son of God, if you will. This will get a little bit theological, but imagine the Son of God in the imminent Trinity and God is looking on what he created and he realizes like there are a lot of problems, right? And just think about the history of humanity and, and all the struggles we've had. There's a lot of beauty and goodness, no doubt about it, but there's a lot of challenges. So God, rather than giving up on us, rather than putting distance between us and him, uh, rather than destroying us, God actually crosses over in the son of God, in Jesus Christ, and unites himself more intimately with us in a sense than before. That's the image I'm holding up for the church today. To find the group of people that maybe you disagree with, maybe you have a hard time with them, maybe they make your pulse just race. I know this exists in me, but to find them and say, look, what did Jesus do in this sense? Jesus crossed over to the other, whether it was the demoniac, whether it was the leper, whether it was the so-called center of society, he crossed over in order to do what I call cultivate a salvific moment, right? A salvific encounter. And once Jesus crossed over, he did a lot of other things, right? He asked questions. Sometimes he healed. Sometimes he challenged the people that were around him. Sometimes he was very quiet. Sometimes he was willing, in a sense, to be persecuted himself or misunderstood and he ultimately did the most loving thing, and that is he gave up himself by crossing over to the other because he knew the risk was worth it. And that's the image that I think Christians ought to be, and I'm trying to be challenged by today, to cross over to the other, to listen, to dialogue, to speak my truth, no doubt about it, to speak my perspectives, to talk about the history and tradition of the church, no doubt about it, also to listen, to try to understand what seems to be different, because there's always a lot more nuance to every position person holds. It's connected to their own history, their own story, what's happened to them in life. And that nuance is where it's really rich ground, I think, in order for us to have a deeper conversation. And once we start to build that relationship through that conversation, well, then I can start to say, I can actually trust you. I can respect you. I see that we do have things in common. We have differences, no doubt about it but that there is a level that kind of gives a foundation of the commonalities that we share. And there can be a love, and, a love and respect. And that's how I think we change. And that's how we create greater unity in a polarized world. 
And Father Westman, I so appreciate that answer. And I want to circle back to something that you said right there in the middle of it. You talked about this metaphor of the culture war, and that reminds me that there's a portion towards the end of the book where you actually bring in a resource called Metaphors We Live By, and you interrogate this idea of war as a metaphor within the church, and you ask us to begin to replace this metaphor with other metaphors because like a mega-identity, the metaphor can really begin to simplify oversimplify and shape our thinking. And so I'm wondering, what's a better metaphor? Would it be bridge building? Would it be the sacrifice for the other? What's the metaphor that we should be looking for to replace this idea of culture war? Yeah, and I found in doing my research that it's important for me to appreciate the power of metaphors in our lives. They're not just communication tools that we use to communicate, but in a sense, they actually form us They form us, they provide a lens for which we see the world. They provide ways for us to see the other. They limit or extend the kind of action we can take in the world. And again, the war metaphor, I understand why it's so enticing. When you say that there is a war within the College of Cardinals, for instance, or a war in the church or a culture war in America, people click on those articles right away, right? Because it's enticing. Really, there's a war going on. Oh my gosh, we need to think about it because war is well, it's very important. It's very dangerous. It's life-threatening. So we go to it. It automatically can attract us. And I understand that. The other thing is, if we're speaking from a particular position, we want to motivate others to act. And what more is more motivating to say that there's a threat on the hillside and we got to do something to counter that threat or else we're going to be in trouble. So we have to be careful how intoxicating and how enticing metaphors can be. Now you ask, what is the metaphor that we should look by? And I believe it's what I would call Christ's incarnational movement or Christ's kenosis. That within the action of the Trinity, we see this whole movement of God to cross over to the other. In order to stand in solidarity with the other, to listen to the other, to ask questions with the other, Oftentimes, sometimes to challenge the other, that's okay, to speak our truth with the other, but ultimately to love the other and to do what Jesus did. And that is to offer salvation to the other, which all, you know, has its source in Christ, but we could be conduits, if you will. We could be sacraments with the lowercase s for other people by crossing over to them. But we will, we will be, it'll be very difficult. Let me say it that way. It'll be very difficult for us to provide these gifts of the church to provide this gift of faith to others if we do not initially cross over. So I believe that's the metaphor. It's the movement, the incarnational movement, the crossing over to the other, to embrace the other. We don't have to embrace everything that the person stands for, no doubt about it, but to embrace them in a sense, in exchange of love and respect and dialogue and salvation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. Father Westman is Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Well, one of the things that I most appreciated about your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, was how you chose to end it. And that was after this analysis showing us the problem and introducing a sort of different way to navigate the problem towards unity in the church. You offer examples, 
concrete individuals and organizations that are doing this work of Christ's crossing over to the other. And I wonder if we can end our conversation with one or two of these examples, either an individual or an organization like Sant'Egidio. What are some of the ways in which our listeners can be left with the people and the groups that are doing this work now today concretely in the church? You know, when I've talked to different groups about this challenge that exists, I often will close with these examples. And I just see people move to tears because they, they're like, so it is possible. Like, there are ways that we can respond. Because I know that people are overwhelmed today, especially when the polarization is affecting their own family. And I understand that. Like, it, we love those who share the same blood as us. And it's a very uh, emotional place to be in. So I was so happy to come across many examples. And I'll just talk about a few of them. One, one person would be a remarkable man, African-American man, Daryl Davis. So in, in summary, Davis experienced racism when he was young. And later on, he, he grew up, he became a musician. He was playing in a bar. After playing, he was approached by a white man. The man was really impressed by his musical talents. He was asking him about his music, talking about that and so on. They sparked up that conversation, started to create a friendship. And in the midst of that, Daryl Davis, this black man, realized that he was talking to one of the leaders of the KKK. An unimaginable experience, right? This KKK member, apparently this was the first black man that he had ever talked to in his life. From that relationship, the man decided to leave the Klan. Well, that wasn't the only individual experience of crossing over that Davis had in his own life. Apparently, Davis attends Klan rallies all over the place. He befriends people who are part of the Klan. Sometimes he's often the first Black person they've ever met in their lives. And through those friendships, I guess it's something like over 200 people have left the Klan, some of them being leaders, because of this relationship that was cultivated only because Davis was willing to cross over, that is to participate in that incarnational movement to the other. Really a remarkable example of something that just makes me so excited to think it and read about that. Another example would be right in the community I belong to in the Glen Mary Home Missioners. So Glen Mary goes to these very rural areas throughout the United States where the Catholic population is less than a half percent. So less than a half percent. We're talking about really a few dozen Catholics in a county of, let's say, 30,000 or 40,000 people. So the majority of the people there would be from a certain kind of Protestant denomination or they would just be unchurched, unaffiliated. Well, one of the members of Glenmary, Brother Craig Dingman, and, and a lot of our members do similar type of ministry, has taken it upon himself to do a ministry of ecumenism, which is trying to deepen unity between Christians. And he has a, as his task, as a Catholic brother, to visit every church in the county. So these are all kinds of Protestant churches all throughout the counties. And you might think, well, that's not that you know big of a deal. These are all Christians. But in fact, there's actually a long history of animus between some Protestants in these counties and Catholics and, and vice versa. So there's no one person to blame, but there's a lot of suspicion, a lack of trust. So Brother Craig goes to their services, worships with them, prays with them, builds relationships with them. And in a similar way to Daryl Davis, many of the people have come to love Brother Craig and to respect him. They've come to ask questions about Catholicism that they never would have asked before. And that doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to be joining the Catholic Church. That's not the primary goal for Brother Craig. The more immediate goal for Brother Craig is to cross over like Christ, to build relationships, to love the people that are with him, 
and to allow them, in a sense, to love and to respect him. And Brother Craig just does that in so many different counties in Glenberry. And it really is a remarkable example of this whole idea of the incarnational movement of Jesus. Now, when we hear stories like this, I, I and I'll just admit that particularly when you're talking about Daryl Davis, like the first response in my brain was, this sounds like a fairy tale. This sounds impossible. This sounds too good to be true. But I'm hearing you saying, and you documented in your book, these are actual concrete changes that are happening in real time because of this daring to cross over to the other. And so my last question to you, Father Westman, is as you have gone through this process of writing this book, and as you have seen these concrete examples of what a different metaphor or a different relationship to Christ, if we can say that, could do, how have you yourself observed yourself being changed? What have been some of the concrete results for your life, your spirituality, and your ministry as a result of going through this process? That's been one of the, I think, most special and intimate things about writing this book. I don't know if it's often, I've never written a book before, so I don't know if it's often that the books we write have such an effect on us. But this book did. There were times where I was writing and I'm just like, I really need to grow in this area. I'm clearly struggling to live this in my own life. And I'll just say a couple of things. The first is cultivating curiosity in my own life. I think that this has been one of the most important things that I have thought about and wrote about and tried to think about for myself. And that is, if I get into a situation where I'm at the dinner table at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and the conversation turns in a direction where I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, can I take a few deep breaths and start to think to myself, what do I need to understand at a deeper level in this conversation? This moment might not be a moment for me to fully engage. I don't need to get into a polemical argument, if you will. But what question can I ask? But ask it genuinely, right? Sometimes we can ask questions to try to stump people. And I can do that myself, which is not a good thing, right? So, but what is the genuine question I have to understand more deeply the person who is sitting across from me? And there's a great respect that's given to the other, even if I disagree with him or her. But I also can find that I grow myself, right? So I say, all right, well, even if I disagree with the perspective, I now know that this is another way of looking at it. And if I ask about that person's story and their history, I see that the nuanced picture of who that person is, and then I can bring it into my own self and think about it for my own life. So that whole sense of curiosity. And then I would just say, the other thing is the virtue of prudence. So if we want to talk about crossing over, engaging the so-called other, it's important to just recognize that not every situation is going to be a good situation for us to do this. Sometimes it might be downright dangerous. Not all, not everybody can be a Daryl Davis, for instance. And that's okay, right? So there are going to be various moments that are presented to us. And we can also create these moments. And we should do it in a space or in an environment where we're not necessarily putting ourselves in harm's way. But to find the right moment in prudence to say, you know what, I think this person is seeking the truth, is seeking goodness and beauty as well. So this is the person of the other group that I should talk to and I should engage. There are going to be some people, there are going to be some articles, there are going to be some Facebook feeds where that's just not going to be possible. And I think for me, it's been just to accept that, accept that maybe this isn't the right moment or the right person, or maybe this is the right moment and the right person. And now I have a chance in prudence to engage the other. Well, Father Robert Aaron Westman, 
when I think about American culture, oftentimes what I get is the image of an orange. And there's lots of ways to dive into an orange and get through the peel. And as you pull it apart, it's just a pulpy, messy, just mush. And then every once in a while, someone comes along and says, if you approach it instead this way, it opens into clean segments and it really, it it becomes manageable and it's not messy in the way that it is in all these other ways of approaching it. When I read your book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World, I felt like you were doing that with me. You were coming alongside, looking at this pulpy, messy mess and saying instead, there's a different way to pull these pieces apart. And when you do, it becomes a much more clean and understandable and manageable process. Any time that anyone can do that for something as huge as American culture, it's a gift to me and to my listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this book and to go through the process that sounds like it was both intellectual and spiritual to create the clean analytic lines that are very evident in this book. This book is so easy to read, but it goes so deep. Thank you for all of that, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. David, thank you so much. It truly has been a privilege and an honor. We've been speaking today with Father Robert Aaron Westman. He's Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. He has a Ph.D. from the Catholic University of Louvain in Systematic Theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious. Today we've been talking about his recent book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.